So the worship this morning, I think, preached the message. So um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what you felt, um, but I could feel just this sense of like this pent up that we needed what we were able to have a few, mo- few moments ago. So I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, I'm going to start this morning with a couple of very controversial words. I'm going to make a statement, and I hope you give me a chance to dig out of it after I make it. Because it really wasn't all that controversial about 10 days ago. But the statement is, I love snow. <laughs> I really do. Although our relationship may be a little bit strained after the last week. Um, 50 degrees has never felt better than I think it did this morning. I mean, I got in the car and I'm like, wait, that's not even the high. That's the temperature leaving my house in the morning is 50 degrees. Like, incredible. I know this has been a challenging week for so many of us. Um, we, had, we were kind of heading into week two of a series and everything, and about midweek we're like, we need to change directions for this Sunday and just, one, take some time to spend some time in worshiping the God who's there in the storm. And then just hopefully a word of encouragement, which the first part of it may not sound as encouraging, but we'll, we'll get to the encouragement in a minute. But um, I, I've had a chance to talk to many of you. I know our staff talked to many of you as well this week. We have some that, like, we were without power for about two hours. One morning, it, it went out. We were able to get the fire started up. It came back a couple hours later. We were in good shape. We didn't ever lose water or anything like that for us. I know there are others in the room who I think it was about 76 hours straight of no electricity and a lot that fell somewhere in between or or didn't have water for stretches or were having to boil water and all of those challenges that came with it. And so what kind of started, you know, when it snows, it's like that, like, oh, it's exciting. And then we go play in the snow a little bit and all that. And a day or two later, we're like, okay, this is not what we were really bargaining for. But um, I know Pastor Wald is actually in town today, but he's at his house because he's got people there trying to help him get stuff cleaned out from where a pipe burst at his house. Um, I know we've got, again, several others on staff and many others in the room that were without power for a long time. Much of St. Angelo, where where our other campus is, does not have power still this morning. Um, I know several of the staff guys were like, keep your distance from us at church this morning because we haven't had showers. So I think most of us here have been able to, but I know that there that that was the case. And actually our office right across the parking lot, we had a uh, sprinkler line that burst and we ended up with a couple inches and so I know Michael had some music instruments and a couple things there too but the fact that we can be here this morning God has sustained us through what has happened this week and so right off the bat though I, I want us to kind of journey through what we've been dealing with this week and so right off the bat the very first point this morning is this God is able to handle your anger and doubt. Because this week, it is very possible that whether you feel it this morning, maybe you're past a little bit with when power's back on, but I imagine at some point this week, for many in this room, there was a feeling of anger, and whether it was directed at God or not, anger at lots of people you could choose from, or doubt of like, God, where are you in the midst of this? But right off the bat, Psalm 13 starting in verse 1, and I think this is one of the most powerful chapters in the entire Bible because of what is able to happen in this chapter. Starting in verse 1, David cries out, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemies will say I have overcome him and my my foes will rejoice when I fall. And so again, I think it's incredibly powerful and that's not the end of the chapter. We'll get there in a little bit. But that here is David who is known as a man after God's own heart, who feels the freedom to stand before God and say, how long have you forgotten me? How long will you forget me? How long are you going to let me walk through what I'm walking through? And the reality is today, I mean, again, we've had a week of really bad weather and a lot of people, again, without power and water and other things. We're coming up on, I mean, we're past 11 months of dealing with COVID and all of the challenges that have faced with that. And again, there are, one, there are people here who have lost loved ones as a result of that and, and facing all that and facing so many different things or maybe something else you're going through. And maybe you need to hear the freedom today that it's okay to go to God and to express your questions, your doubts, your anger with him that he is able to handle it. Because what we don't see in verse 5, and again, we're not going there yet, but what we don't see in verse 5 is God strike David down. Okay, well, you, you want to you see how long? Let me show you. No, God instead is faithful to the midst of that. If, if you had a chance to watch our online service this weekend, or if you get a chance to, Pastor Lane did an excellent job of diving into Mark 4, and I just want to touch on it for a moment here. But in Mark 4, it says, A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, what's the context of that? Well, Matthew 8, which also tells, that, tells this same story, right before that, Jesus had healed a man with leprosy. Jesus had healed a centurion's servant remotely, Like the centurion's like, I know you don't even have to go there. You can just say the word and it'll happen. Jesus said the word, it happened immediately. He he healed Peter's mother-in-law. We think Peter was happy about that. Um, It's okay to laugh. Um, He cast out demons and he healed many others who were sick. That's what happens in Matthew right before they get in the boat and they start going across and a storm comes up and the disciples are like, we're going to die. Jesus, do you not care? Like after everything Jesus had done right before that, they still in that moment were feeling it. They face the storm and they think they're going to die. Mother Teresa. I mean, again, if we're going to pick people that we want to put on a pedestal of like people who lived really good lives and did a lot of good things for a lot of people, Mother Teresa. About 10 years after her death, there was a book that came out that had a lot of her writings. And in them, she expresses doubt after doubt after doubt. She says... In my soul, I feel just the terrible pain of loss of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. And as I was reading through some of the, some of the writings there and some people reflecting on what she had to say, there were people like, I can finally relate to Mother Teresa. And then I felt that way. And she dealt with that for about 50 years of her life, this incredible dark night of the soul for her. And a prayer that comes out of Mark, but that she would echo would just be, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
Elie Wiesel, and I've mentioned him before a number of occasions, but he wrote a powerful book called Night, and it's basically a story of his time in a couple of concentration camps. 1944, he was sent to Auschwitz along with his family, and his mother and his sister died there. In 45, he was moved to Buchenwald, where his father passed away, and he was 17 later that year when, it was, when that camp was liberated by the Americans. So he's dealing with all of that just in his teenage years. And he says, the first quote, I've got a couple from him, but he says, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turn into wreaths of smoke. Never shall I forget the flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. And then in one of the most powerful passages from the book, he tells a story of when he's watching a young boy who's being killed. And he said, where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, where is he? Here he is, hanging here on this gallows. And his faith was challenged in this incredible way as he walked through something that, again, we can't even begin to imagine. And then we have John the Baptist, the one who was the one who cried out, prepare for the way of the Lord. This is Jesus' cousin. He's the messenger. He's the one who does all these incredible things. And in Matthew 11, starting in verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? The one who was so sure. The one who baptized Jesus. And when he baptized Jesus, heard God the Father say, This is my son, whom I am well pleased in. Listen to him. That same John, as he sits in prison, goes, Did I miss the boat? Was I wrong? Is he not the one? But if God can handle their fears, their questions, their anger, and their doubts, he can handle yours and mine as well. Again, he knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're dealing with, what we're struggling with, and he'd rather us be honest with him and say it to him than to try and pretend like it's all okay. God is able to handle your anger and your doubt. The second thing is that Emmanuel is with us during the storm. God with us. He's there in the storm. I came across this article that was written Friday. It's called Raging at God After My 67-Year-Old Father Died of COVID by Carol McIntyre. And she says, my dad was a vibrant and healthy 67-year-old when he caught COVID-19 and died a few weeks before Christmas it was an abrupt and jarring experience for my family. I was left heartbroken and enraged. I was angry at the seemingly never-ending pandemic and honestly at God for creating such a broken world. 
for days after my dad died as a way of praying my pain, I imagined myself standing outside the gates of heaven hurling insults and rocks at the divine. I kept thinking of the story of Job and how he refused to curse God. In this moment, I fully realized I am not Job. Day after day, I kept showing up at the gates, heaving accusations and a flood of obscenities at God. Perhaps I was trying to provoke God. I wanted the gates to open and for the divine to step out and give me some explanation. I will be clear that my theology does not embrace the idea that God caused my father to die for his glory. Yet I am hard-pressed to understand why God would allow a world where a virus can, within months, destroy the lives of so many people. 468,000 deaths in America at the moment I write these words. More than 2.3 million deaths worldwide. What in the world, God? Do you not care for us? So many tears and so much grief. Tears for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What is wrong with you, God? Do you delight in seeing us suffer? One day when my grief was particularly heavy, I brought a battering ram along my trip to heaven's gates and attempted to break them down and hold God to account. I fully understand the absurdity of the statement that I've always believed God can handle our emotions, including our rage and soul-crushing grief. Plus, where else could I go? As I pounded away at the pearly gates, unexpectedly, an image of God, heartbroken and enraged, came to mind. The thought came, what if God's rage and sorrow matches my own? After all, more than two million of God's beloved children have died. Their lives cut short. They did not have to die. So many lives could have been saved. I thought, even now, we do not feel the weight of our decisions, but God does. For the last year, God has sat by every bedside where beloved children took their last breaths. God held their hands, including my dad's, when their loved ones could not God heard every wail of devastated families, witnessed dreams shattering, and counted their tears. God watched as nurses and doctors collapsed under the weight of it all. God also has borne the brunt of our failures. God has suffered. And again, in a moment ago when we looked at that passage of, of the disciples who were in the storm and were afraid they were going to die, where was Jesus? He was right there with them. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 1, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And it's not if you pass through the waters. And when you pass through the rivers, not if, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, not if, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. So again, it's not if when we face those types of things in our life, but it's that God says, I will be there with you. And it's the, past, it's the picture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're in the fiery furnace. And all of a sudden, the people watching are like, who's the fourth person? We didn't put anybody else in there. You see the Son of God walking in their midst, in the midst of the fire. God with them. And I know David told the story back in December of Jesus and Lazarus. Um, John 11 is one of my other like, favorite chapters in the Bible, not because it's all happy, but because we see how Jesus can relate to us. That Jesus, when his friend Lazarus dies, he comes into town. And again, he didn't heal him from afar. He didn't even rush to get into town, but he gets there. Martha comes out and she's like, why, you know, why weren't you here? You could have stopped this. 
And then Mary, who was even reluctant to come, Mary finally comes and comes out to him. And it says, it was when Jesus saw Mary weeping and saw those, the Jews that were there mourning with her, that Jesus was, it says, he was troubled, deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And it's in that moment that it says Jesus wept. It's not just because he got to the body. And again, he knew what was about to happen. But he could relate so much with the hurt and pain that they were feeling. And him feeling that sense of loss, even knowing it was just for a moment still, that Jesus wept. And how encouraging is that to know that we have a God who when we're in the midst of the storm, that he is with us and he weeps and he grieves with us, but he also doesn't have to leave us there. And when, this, when Wiesel said, where is he? Here he is, here he is, hanging here in the gallows. You read that and it's like his faith has died, but in that moment I also read that and say, God was there even in the midst of that with those who were suffering and hurting. God meets us in the storm. He weeps with us. The third thing, we could start turning a little happier now. The third is that the church is Christ's hands and feet. And then in parentheses there I've got during the storm because the reality is we're to be his hands and feet at all times. But we especially see that in the storm. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 44, it says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And that doesn't mean that, you know, when we walk in, we're like, okay, everybody go sell all your stuff and bring it here. But it means that when there were needs that were there, they met each other's needs. They did it together. What do you need? What do I have? How can I connect the dots to get you what you need in this moment? 1 John 4.16, we read, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. And then it says, Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. When we live out love, that's when it says we're right there in the midst of God's presence in him living and through us. This week we've gotten to see a couple of really cool pictures. If you've had a chance to see much of the news of just what's been going on of people meeting needs. First picture I want to throw up. Uh, no, it's a little bit blurry there, but this is H-E-B in Leander. And I don't know how many of y'all have heard the story. It's gotten pretty widely spread around this H-E-B and Leander, people were there shopping. It was kind of in the middle of the, the storm. It already hit the first wave. I think the second wave wasn't there yet. Um, you know, lots of people without power, lots of people without water, all of that. And people are in there shopping when the power goes off. So the people in there shopping expect when the power goes off that they're going to say, hey, y'all have to leave. Sorry, but you know, we're not going to be able to ring you out or whatever or anything. You need, you need to just go. Well, hearing from a couple people who were there, like, they let them keep shopping. And about 10 or 15 minutes later, they're still shopping and shopping. And then finally, somebody comes through and says, hey, if y'all are okay, kind of heading up to the front, they're going to take care of you. So they start heading up there, and there are 100, 100 plus people in the store that are heading up to the lines to get checked out. And remember, there's no power. And I've, you know, I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever worked at a grocery store, but you know, most of us at some point have done the little scanning at least on the, the self-checkout. But here they are, 
They don't have that. They don't have any way really of looking up how much stuff costs and everything. And it says that there's a little bit of a delay for just a minute or two. And all of a sudden, the pace just picks up. And it's just like, man, they have gotten super efficient at how they're checking these people out. Well, again, the people telling the story are like, then all of a sudden they realize that what's happening is the people, at the, the employees of HEB are like, you can go. Take your stuff. Like, we can't bag it for you, unfortunately, but you can take your stuff and you can go. You don't have to pay. So people who are in the midst of this, again, incredible storm and dealing with that and everything, and it wasn't even like, hey, we're going to let you go, but you need to get out as quick as possible. It was like, take 10 or 15 minutes to get the rest of what you need. Then we're going to let you leave and not have to pay. Again, what an incredible, incredible picture there in that moment. And the next picture, this is a couple from Austin uh, on the left, and then this is a driver for a delivery, like food delivery company, you know, like Uber Eats or something like that. I didn't, I couldn't find the company that she worked for. She actually is from Houston, but she would drive to Austin because the people would pay better in Austin than they would in Houston, so they'd make a little bit more money. So she had driven on Sunday from Houston to Austin and was working, and she's watching the weather getting worse and worse, and again, it hit there later than it hit here. And she's trying to make one more run before making a three-hour drive back from Austin to Houston. When all of a sudden, she's sliding around on the road, and she's heading towards this house. And like, it was one of those situations where she really thinks that there is a good chance she's going to hit the house itself. Well, she manages to not hit the house, but she ends up in the flower bed with her car. And so she like sends a message to the people inside and she's like, I'm here with your delivery. Uh, unfortunately, I'm stuck in your, flower, like in your flower bed out here. So they come out there and they're like helping her get her car out of the flower bed. They get the stuff. And then in the course of conversation, realize she is about to have to drive from Austin to Houston, which is three hours when it's good weather. But with the weather coming in, who knows what it was going to take. And obviously roads were getting bad at this point. So this couple said, why don't you stay with us? She's like, no, I can't do that. And they're like, no, why don't you stay with us? No, I can't, like, back and forth. And finally, she stays with them. And when the article came out, she had been there for five days, staying with this family that she was making a delivery for that she had never met before, but opened their home to her to care for her in the midst of this moment of like, hey, we're here, we're, you know, you can be safe here and all that, and we can do that. What incredible pictures of reaching out and meeting needs. This week we saw, uh, I mean, we saw people sharing water. We saw people that were sharing food, that were sharing lodging. We saw, uh, again, it, you know, warming centers in town where, where churches were coming together and helping pull off those things and, and overnight centers and all of that. And again, Elie Wiesel said this, he said, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. And so it's, this, it's that incredible, we want to be about showing love. And so, but it's, it's, it's just figuring out how to do that as well as possible. So um, we've had, and again, there have been several opportunities we've had to meet some needs, and we've had some people who've offered to meet some needs. So what we want to do, uh, if you go to the next slide, on our website, the, the address is right across there. 
Um, and you're welcome, if you want to pull out your phone right now and even just pull up that page, uh, or if you want to write that down to go to it later, and we will have it up in the Connect Center as well. This page is on our website, and that's all there is to the form. I want to kind of show you, it's not like a really long, scary form to have to fill out. But basically, there's a place where you put your name, your email address, your phone number, and to check one of two boxes or both boxes, which is, I need help, or I would like to offer help, or you might have both. Like, you might, I need this, but I can offer that. You can check that, and in the box below there, you can just, it just says, please describe the help you need and or the type of help you're offering to provide. That will help us connect dots. We've got some resources that we have, and we're glad to make those available, but again, we've had a lot of people like, what can I do to help? So help us know, if you have a need that we can help meet, please fill this out. And if you're like, I want to help meet a need, please fill this out, and it will help us connect those dots for us to be able to be the hands and feet of Christ in the midst of this. And so, and again, you can do that on your phone, you can do that when you go home, you can do it in the Connect Center after we finish in just a couple minutes. Last thing. Yes, Matt. Yes, thank you for pointing that out. So a lot of times on a website addresses, you're like, does it matter if I do capitals or not? Please do lowercase storm, all lowercase letters, um, and it will get there. We'll get it fixed later where you can type it, capitalize or whatever, but I didn't want to send Michael that at midnight last night when I put that on the website. So um, fourth thing, thank you though again, Matt. The fourth is that hope can be found in the storm. Hope can be found in the storm. Jeremiah 29, 11, wonderful verse. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I want to read you just a little bit of an article from Relevant Magazine. It said, it's written on graduation cards, quoted to encourage a person who can't seem to find God's will and doled out like a doctor explaining a prescription. Take Jeremiah 29, 11 a few times with a full glass of water and call me in the morning. I think you'll feel better. The context of Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't what we always think. This was written to the people, the children of Israel who were in exile. And in verse 10, right before that, it says that he's like, in 70 years, I'm going to come back and deliver you back to this place. Like you're going to get freed in 70 years. So God didn't even say in the midst of that, like, hey, everything's great, everything's wonderful, like, you know, tomorrow, every, like, you're just going to be free. It's like, you got a long ways to go. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the storm, God says to his people, I have a plan for you. And it will ultimately be to prosper you, not to harm you, give you hope in a future. But again, sometimes that doesn't mean that we get to skip the hard part to get there. Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. And again, he's not saying we won't have troubles. He's saying we can have hope in the midst of the troubles, that God will deliver us even if it's not the way we think he should. Romans 8, starting at verse 22, I think this paints a picture. It says, we know that whole, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
We do not know what we ought to pray for. How many times have we been there? But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And Chris touched on this earlier. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And again, it's not that everything that happens is going to be good. We live in a fallen world. But God says, I can take anything and bring good out of it. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And again, it's not saying there aren't those who will be against us. It's like they don't have a chance of succeeding. And why don't they? Well, verse 32, because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. That's a lot of stuff. But none of that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, it's not a picture of easy sailing. It's, it's a picture of struggle where God meets us and helps us to come through it. The love of God overcomes. We started in the very beginning with a couple of little passages we touched on of people who were in moments of doubt, of people who were in moments of anger. After David's, how long, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to forget us? Will you forget me forever? He ends that chapter with these verses. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. When the disciples wake up Jesus and they're like, don't you even care? Don't you even care that we're about to die? Don't you care if we drowned? It says he got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And what about John the Baptist's are you the one, or should we be waiting for another? They went and they asked Jesus. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. cleansed. The, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I want to read one more passage. As we prepare to wrap up, this was written by, there's a lot of back and forth, whether, you know, David gets credit for a lot of the book of Psalms, but um, this is thought to be kind of the worship leader for David and for the people at that time. But he writes this out on behalf of the people, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? 
Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And again, that sense of all of this, and and again, wherever you're at, whatever you may be dealing with, when you get to this point, you're like, God, like, is there an end? Have you forgotten me? Have you given up on me? Am I on my own? Am I left to deal with all of this? Like, are, are you just not around anymore? It says, then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. And that moment of saying, God, when, when it seems like you're so far away and I'm not sure if you're still working, I'm going to remember that you have been faithful time and time and time again. And God, I trust that you're going to continue to be faithful. It says, your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob, of Joseph. And then he goes into this retelling of like this, basically the parting of the Red Sea. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and they writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So again, wherever you are. And maybe you're on the back end of that. Maybe right now you're in the point where you're like, I have just seen God do the wonderful things. And maybe you've experienced the miracles of God recently. If you're there, rejoice in it. But if you're struggling, if you're tired, if you're worn out, if you're questioning, remember what God has done and know he'll do it again.